Over the years, we've had several financial uh, campaigns. And one time, years ago, we had a friend come out. Uh, he's a pastor up in New Sweden or Stockholm, uh, which is a part of our denomination. Um, this was a young couple that uh, they, were, they were from away, and they were serving in this church in northern Maine. Uh, and I, I, they were trying to transition them into um, a little bit less of the past and more of the future. And um, I don't, I, I can't. I think they were just in the area, and we asked them to come down and speak on this subject of of, of campaigns and, and money and all that. And I'll, I'll just never forget the story he told, where he said, I don't know. It wasn't so much a story; it's just sort of a kind of a truth that I'm wondering if anyone else can identify with. He said, you know, I would do, I would have this plan, this financial plan, where we just need to get ahead a little bit, have some emergency set aside, and I would save up X amount of dollars. I'd save up $1,500, and I'd be feeling pretty good about it, and then we'd have a $1,500 problem come up. So then he starts over, and he's like, I got to about $500, and then there was a $500 problem, right? $2,300, $2,300, you guys... You can identify with that. Yeah, it's frustrating, right? And so as we, uh, as we think about this time where we are rebuilding, uh, Lent isn't so much just about rebuilding, but we've sort of cast that theme over this year as far as our teaching from the pulpit goes. Um, and we're looking at Nehemiah. But this idea of transition, uh, maybe we can think of it as from brokenness to wholeness or wellness, from... Uh, surviving to thriving, um, from financial uh, insecurity to a good financial plan, opposition is going to arise. It's, it's, it's just bound to happen. That, that kind of transition is uh, not going to go unnoticed. Um, and that as we wrestle with um, our own temptations, our own plans, and our struggle and our our kind of uniting with Jesus during this time of temptation, um, there's going to be opposition. And we see that with Jesus. I mean, if we're thinking about Lent and the 40 years, the 40 days of Lent and Jesus' 40 days of temptation, that is exactly what happens. Um, he's led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness, and he's tempted um, for that time. And so that is, that's part of it. That's part of this journey of Lent. So uh, the transition from brokenness to wholeness or wellness uh, will be met with opposition. The transition from selfishness to generosity will be met with opposition. The transition from being blind to being insightful, from being self-centered to empathetic, um, from, being, from surviving to thriving, it will be met with opposition. And that is what we come to in this story with uh, Nehemiah. Um, chapter 1, we hear this report of the city's walls being broken, um, the gates being burned, and uh, Nehemiah is distressed. The very first thing he does is, is pray. And the very first thing he does in prayer is call upon the power of God, invokes the power of God. Um, he calls on God to be faithful 
to be um, in this relationship, be faithful to the relationship with Israel. And then finally, he says, help me in this, in this project. Um, and that's sort of the foundation. And we, we, last week, what we talked about is that there's a sort of emptying that needs to happen uh, so that we could be filled with uh, God and the spirit of God and the power of God. And um, what I heard after last week was that that was a powerful point, but people didn't quite make the connection between Nehemiah. And so it, it was subtle. But what we see with Nehemiah is that um, there's, a, there's a little notice in chapter 1 and 2 about what month it is. And so what we realize is that he begins his prayer in chapter 1, but it's three or four months before he approaches the king about going back. And so that, just that amount of time is saying instead of me filling uh, this project and trying to rush it and trying to push it, trying to orchestrate it, he spends uh, this time and sort of emptying his time in prayer and in planning. And then uh, when he does step out, it just seems a bit ironic to me that he has to go to this earthly king. And that's what's interesting about Nehemiah is that he does recognize the earthly powers and he doesn't try to bypass. Um, he takes his time and uh, that's sort of an emptying process when we sort of have to humble ourselves uh, before the powers that be um, and recognize that behind these things that God is at work and trust that. That's an emptying process. So he empties himself, and uh, which is the way of Jesus, and moves forward. So now uh, he's going to travel back to um, Jerusalem. And what we see here is as... He travels. Um, this travel is not going to happen without opposition. This is where we get the first mention of opposition uh, that he's going to face. And this transition between exile and return, this transition between brokenness and being healed, this transition between whatever that is, uh, that's where that's going to show up. And what we see throughout this book is that every time he sort of gets by one hurdle, uh, there's another one, and that's sort of the, the, one of the themes that we see that kind of bind this book together, that he, he uh, follows God, he empties himself, he prays, he, he, he does the things he needs to, and that all works out well, and then there's another hurdle that he has to overcome. So this opposition uh, keeps coming. So let's read, and I want us to get, I'm going to, I told Eduardo before we started, we're going to get a little Baptist this morning. I even got three points, so I don't usually do that, but we got three points on opposition, and then, uh, yeah, okay. Nehemiah 2, verses, uh, verses 9 and 10. We are introduced to this opposition. It says, When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when... Sinballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard of my arrival. They were greatly displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. So we get introduced to these two people that will show up throughout the rest of this uh, narrative. And uh, we're going to get a third even uh, within this narrative. But what's interesting is we have this, it doesn't come out in English. English, you know, terms and vocabulary words are, are really slippery. And in order to make this read well in English, um, some terms get 
changed, uh, not changed in meaning, but uh, it says the Ammonite, when they heard of his arrival, they were greatly displeased. Now, displeased there is the word for bad or evil in uh, Hebrew. And then that someone had come to help the people of Israel. And that is the term good. So you have this term of evil and good, or bad and good. And actually, this is something that's been going on throughout the book already, in the first chapter and a half, that these terms are repeated over and over and over again. So the author is trying to clue us in into a theme that he's trying to develop as he tells this story. And that theme, I, I think that as we think about our own transition of whatever we're doing in Lent or whatever we're wrestling with that we're trying to bring to God and that we're trying to empty ourselves with and trying to be filled with God's power, whatever that transition is, I think that what the author here is trying to remind us is that this is a battle between good and evil. That this isn't just, oh, we got to rebuild the city. Um, when we think about what, whatever we're fasting from, whatever we're tackling during the season, it's not just self-help. Self-help helps, okay? Um, but there's something bigger going on that is a battle. That is, uh, there's something between, you know, it, God does not design us to just survive. <laughs> we should be flourishing and thriving as human beings. Amen. Fully human. Made in the image of God. Where we're living that abundant life that Jesus is talking about. That's what's at stake. That there is a battle going on. I was reminded of what Paul writes in Ephesians 6, right? 6.10 says, I don't believe this is in there, Wendy. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against the mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. My earliest experiences with church were very Baptist and not charismatic. So, you know, I, I, I have to admit that I don't really think of this very often, that the battles I'm struggling are against principalities and powers, spiritual forces. I don't think about that very often, because in that formative, those formative years, I didn't hear much about that. Um, but it's a great reminder, and it's, it's also important to remember that this comes off of a, a, a portion in Ephesians, where Paul is talking about some very practical things. He's, he's not, he's not in, a, in, a, in a place where he's talking about, uh, it's not like Revelation and these images of uh, devils. and He's talking about how the family gets along. He's talking about submitting to one another. He's talking about spouses uh, submitting to one another. He's talking about uh, how we should parent our kids and how the kids should respond to us and how we deal with managing a household and, you know, all these sort of things that are very practical. And right on the tail, he says, this is, this is the battle is beyond the flesh and blood. There's something more going on. And so it might be helpful for us to be reminded of that. Um, as I go through Lent and I'm trying to work on the things that I felt God lead me to focus on, um, the battle is bigger. And when I realize that, it drives me back to that chapter one, that prayer. I need God's strength to help me through this. Amen. 
I need to remember the community and the effect that um, my own temptation and maybe giving it a temptation affects the family, affects the community, affects my friends. Um, just as Nehemiah does right in the beginning. Um, so the battle is between good and evil. This is a theme that runs through this, and it, and it can be hidden real easily as our English translation tries to smooth out these sentences. It's very clear in Hebrew. It's, it's ra and tov, right? Ra and tov, evil and good. That this is a battle that's bigger than just rebuilding the walls. He moves on, and he says, So I arrived in Jerusalem three days later. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about pl the plans God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. I love that, because the opposition has already been presented to him, and Nehemiah's pretty smart. He's not going to clue them into the plans before he goes out and inspects this, the, the walls. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey I was riding. After dark, I went out through the valley gate, past the jackal's well and over the dung gate to, the to inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again to the valley gate. The city officials did not know. He repeats what he says in the beginning. The city officials did not know that I had been out there or what I was um, doing. For I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, or anyone else in the administration. So he, he repeats that theme in the beginning, that he goes out in secret. And right in the middle, you have the inspection of the walls. That's the centerpiece of that whole thing. That's the point. <clears throat> and what I love about this is that um, he's already distraught. There's work to do. But there is a sense in which he needs to go out and he needs to have a personal experience of the devastation there. A personal encounter with the problem. A personal encounter with what is broken. A personal encounter with what's missing. Where is that abundance missing? And, of course, this is not written to, you know, specifically for this spiritual journey that we are on. But if we're going to pull principles out of this, that there's something very important here. That until we have that experience of the devastation that is there, of the brokenness that is there, I'm not sure we can get very far ahead of it. We can't move forward in that. We talked a little bit about this last week when the king asked him, what is it that you need? What can I do for you? It's a very pointed question. And if Nehemiah is smart, which he seems to be, he gives a specific answer. Here is the problem. Here is exactly what I need. I need to rebuild the, the walls. When Jesus, I mentioned this last week, when Jesus crosses the lake, he's confronted by this man with a demon. Talk about spirituality and powers and the battle not being against flesh and blood. And the first thing he does is ask the name. 
What is your name? Very specific. So there's this point at which, yeah, we need to name it. You know, we need to confess what the issues are. But we also need to be able to really see it and feel it and experience the issues there. And that's what Jesus is doing in the wilderness for that 40 days. If he's being tempted, he's being tempted. I think sometimes we write it off. He's Jesus. He's God. You know, he's getting tempted, but it's not quite the same. No, it is the same. That's the point. That's why we have a high priest who is sympathetic to our needs. This is mentioned in Corinthians and in Hebrews, that Jesus understands what we go through, that he has been through it as well, that he saw it in the desert. The devil came along and said, I know you're hungry. Why? Because he is hungry. Throw yourself off, or off the ledge. Presume upon God. Why? Because he's actually tempted to presume upon God. And he's actually tempted to give his allegiance to someone else and bow before this person that offers him all the kingdoms of the world. But he doesn't give in. So there is a point at which if we're going to thrive, if we're going to move from brokenness to wholeness, we've got to look honestly at the brokenness. And then he moves on from there. But now in verse 17, But now I said to them, You know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sinbal and Tobiah and Geshem, we have someone, a third person here, the Arab heard of our plan, they scoffed contemptuously. What are you doing? Are you rebuilding against the king? They asked. I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, as servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, no legal right, historic claim in Jerusalem. Now, in this section, we finally see him rallying the people. And one of the things that you see three times is let us. Let us rebuild. Let us rebuild. Let us rebuild. This is a community project that he moves from this uh, personal secret inspection of the damage and now begins to recruit others to help rebuild this wall. And one of the things that's interesting is that you see here is that God is at the center of this. I told him about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And this is what you see consistently so far with Nehemiah is that God is there the whole time. God is behind the whole thing. He's got a vision of God at the forefront. He keeps returning to that. 
And so you have these, the opposition shows up again. And what's interesting is there's, there's a third person. And when you do the homework and realize where these guys are from, what you get here is that Jerusalem is surrounded. This third person now comes into the scene, and the sense is that Jerusalem as a city is surrounded by opposition. The whole thing is surrounded. It doesn't look good. And what's interesting there is they say, uh, <clears throat> what are you doing? This is an accusation, right? And what's interesting with this crew is that God is never mentioned. They don't argue that God has some other plan. God is just left out of the whole thing. And the question is, it doesn't come off this way, but a question like that, we all know how it works. It's an accusation. Do you really think that you can pull this off? Do you really think that as we face our own temptation, as we face our own season of Lent, the voices will come in saying, are you really, do you really think that dot, 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 whatever it is, the accusations, this is, this is the heart of temptation. And this idea of pulling God out of the picture is at the center of our human predicament. Right? We go back to the book of, I don't know, Genesis, chapter 3. Did God really say this? Do you really need to consider God when you do this? Let's just take that equation out of the picture. Let's just think about this logically. And they're bringing up this old event that we had mentioned in Ezra chapter 4, where all the opposition came in and said, hey, king, you know, they can't rebuild this because uh, that's going to be a fortified city and that's going to be a problem for you. There's going to be rebellion. That's what they're playing on, this thing that happened chapters and chapters and chapters ago, years ago. But Nehemiah's way forward in the midst of all this is keeping God at the center of this project. Square in the middle. In fact, his reply is the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. God is at the middle. So our three points is that this is a battle between good and evil. <clears throat> We need to understand, we need to have a personal encounter with the need there, the devastation. And we keep God at the center. When we're facing opposition, that's what we do. Keep God at the center. Now, um, <clears throat> one of the things that happens as I close here... Um, when we tell stories like this, particularly in our country, as Americans, our founding story, one of our foundation stories, foundational stories as Americans, this is something that sits in the back of our heads, and we don't even know it's there, but it affects us so deeply, is that we are the individual fighting against the enemies. Amen. <laughs> okay? I mean, when we read a story like this, we automatically put ourselves in the character of Nehemiah, who has all these people coming at us, and we got to fight our way through. So I guess what I want to ask, um, and it's not to make us feel guilty leaving out of here, but, I, but it's important 
that we at least change the perspective a little bit. Um, what if we're the opposition? What if we're the opposition? Everyone has stuff going on. I have stuff capitalized. S-T-U-F-F. Everyone's got stuff going on. Um, and maybe particularly this year, we're realizing a lot of stuff that we hadn't realized before. I know it's true for me. People are dealing with adult children. People are dealing with parents, trying to deal with teens, trying to deal with children, younger children. Dealing with unexpected expenses that stress our finances. Dealing with unexpected income decline. Dealing with physical, mental health. Dealing with unexpected tragedy. Dealing with unexpected job changes. Dealing with a hope for a job change that doesn't seem to come to fruition. Is there a possibility that as others are making their silent rounds about their broken walls, that we could be asking a question that doesn't involve God at all? Do you really think this is wise? Here's what we should do. <clears throat> and I want us to meditate on that, just to think about it. One thing I've seen this year is that a lot of people are suffering. It seems to be bubbling to the surface. And I want to make sure that as a community, as, and for myself, that there is a healthy respect for, there's a lot going on that we don't see. Someone has made the rounds around the wall and we didn't see it because they went out and out and they've seen their devastation and they know that God is behind something. And sometimes it doesn't look so logical to us. It doesn't look wise to us. It doesn't look smart. And I want us to be very careful about speaking into that without doing this, what Nehemiah does. Where Nehemiah keeps God at the center of this whole thing. Um, <clears throat> the power of God. And maybe where we need to see that whatever their struggles are going through are not so simple that there is a struggle between good and evil here, between the powers of darkness and the powers of light, the powers of uh, what helps us to be well and thriving and those that break us and our brokenness. So we're going to ask the band to come on back up. Um, think about it. I don't know which perspective uh, strikes you this morning, whether it's... Uh, you're coming at it from the perspective of Jeremiah or from the opposition. But whatever tug you feel, I would, I would ask you to tease that out of it. Sit, sit with it and let it um, uh, keep bringing that back to God, back to Jesus and saying, what's going on here? What am I doing? Um, what's the opposition that I'm facing? Am I being an opponent to someone? How can I not be um, as we travel through together this time of Lent.